So we have two scripture passages today for your hearing. The first is found in the Old Testament, chapter 7, beginning with verse 9. This is what the Lord Almighty said, Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor, and do not plot evil against each other. Against each other. And from Matthew chapter 2, also beginning with verse 9. After they away, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When, the saw the, when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warmed in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So they got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt, I have called my son. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God.
what your witnesses do, they don't just see, they testify with what a witness does in court. The end of the story that starts with Christmas is the total life change through the forgiveness of sins proclaimed in his, meaning Jesus' name, to all the nations. Forgiveness, you might say, is the end of the Christmas story. For us, and for everybody, to be given to us that we might give it to others, or at least be the witnesses, be the bringers of the good news, the ones who witness, who testify to the forgiveness. And now I want to bring us back to the Christmas story proper as we understand it. But two weeks ago, we learned about the entry of the Magi, the wise men, the three kings is how they are sometimes referred to. All right, this happens earlier in Matthew 2, and what happens is that these Magi, Again, the word magi means wise men, but a particular type of wise men. They were sort of part of a priestly class of the Eastern religion. More than likely, they were astrologers. They followed the stars and then tried to determine some sort of meaning out of them, much like I believe people now do with horoscopes and whatnot. So these were Eastern practitioners of some sort of astrology and they see the star and they come to Jerusalem. What a strange thing for practitioners of Eastern astrological religion to do, right? That of all the ways they might respond, they choose to come to Jerusalem. I don't know that I had that is definitely the preachers. All right, Colin. Thank you, Miss Jennifer. My kid's sick. I had it on. Uh, anyway, we're moving on. Okay. All right. So, um, they follow the star, much like we're trying to follow the thread of this message at this point. And how is it that of all places they knew to come to Jerusalem? I don't know that I had ever considered this, or if I had, it had sort of gone in one ear and out the other. Just how it was that these Eastern astrologers knew what to do when they saw the star. Here's our best understanding. Our best understanding is that when they saw the star and they immediately thought of the Jewish king is because they lived in a community that had regular interactions with Jews. What community or what eastern location had an established Jewish community? Babylon. Anybody know anything about Babylon? They're the resident bad guys in the Old Testament, or yes, in the Old Testament. So I have to tell a funny, which is somewhat related, uh, and forgive me, Colin dear, for telling a story on you, but just this past week, Luke asked Colin if he knew what The Sound of Music was about. And he goes, yeah, it's that woman on a hill, she has a bunch of children, and then she gets attacked by Russians. <laughs> and the funny thing is, they weren't Russians, but does it really matter, right? Russians, Nazis, when it comes to like the late 20th century, they're just all bad guys. You can interchange them. And that's how Babylon was. 
the resident bad guy. And now these Babylonians have come to worship the king. It's as if God is saying, even the worst of the worst in Jesus can be forgiven. The story goes on is even more expansive because where these astrological practitioners, and again, I do need to make sort of a side note, they were not, their, their religion took them as far as it could go, right? But they still needed the scriptures to be the full revelation. When they get to the courtyard of Herod, it is the Jewish scholars and scribes who are able to say, all right, let's break open the Torah. And so based on the revelation they had, it got them to Jerusalem. Scripture took them that last mile, and then ultimately the answer was Jesus. Anyway, after the Magi worship Jesus, the people who should have worshipped him, the Jews themselves, don't. In fact, and, and we don't read about the massacre of the innocents, or at least we don't in our worship services generally, but if you keep reading in Matthew 2, you know that things get pretty ugly. There's a king who decides he doesn't want his power to be threatened, and so he decides to inflict punishment on the Jewish people. And then an extraordinary reversal Jesus and his family flee to Egypt. This is ringing any bells for those of you who know some Old Testament story as well. For the people who first would have read this, they would have been like, wait a minute, that's the other bad guy. Nazis, Russians, you're hitting them all. And there are a lot of parallels in this story. There's a king. There's the, the death of babies, right? In the Exodus story, for those of us who are familiar, the death of the firstborn, there's a lot of parallels, except for in this story, it's the Jewish king who is inflicting the torment. And it is into Egypt that God's people, or God's family, Jesus and his parents, flee for safety. Even... Egypt, in Jesus, is redeemed. And so then let me bring this back to the story of the Who's. Again, non-biblical, but it's a fun little story for us to look at some of the parallels. Uh, in this moment that we see Grinch on top of the hill, and we saw a little bit of it last week, a little bit of this week, if you weren't here last week or aren't familiar with the story, it's, it's the singing of the Who's that at least creates the window of the opportunity for the Grinch to change his mind. He thinks that Christmas is again about noise and packages and gratuitous um, self-absorption, for lack of a better word, right? Like we just sort of revel in, in giving ourselves good things to eat and presents. And when he, when he cocks his head to listen to the sound of their wailing and moans, instead what he hears is a song. Now you might have expected for, for that noise or that sound to have been weeping. 
Or maybe you might have expected it to be a war cry, right? Like, let's go up there and get that Grinch. But apparently this was not the tenor of the song because there was something about it that provided the space. And I suggest, but whether this is what Seuss intended or not, certainly I think this is the message of Christmas, uh, the content of the song was somehow love. Let's just make believe words in, in Seuss's version. But there was something about this song that expressed kindness and love when by all rights, what it should have been was anger and hate, right? I think this is further proven because when, uh, when the Grinch slides down that hill, you see the little people skip to the side and let him come into the circle. It wasn't just to arrest him, which is maybe what I would have done, right? Circle the wagons. Instead, it was to invite him to their celebration. At the end, at the end of the story, the Grinch is invited to the feast. Despite all the things he's done, no matter how Grinchy or Babylonian or resident bad guy he was, he wasn't just included, he was also placed in a position of honor. And this now brings me, because we've been trying to wrap a bunch of threads in, right? We've got our, our Advent candle of love, we've got our Grinch story, and we're, we're also trying to ring this bell of Advent conspiracy. And today's theme is to love all. Uh, in the Advent conspiracy framework, they challenge Christians, specifically Christians, right? I mean, you wouldn't expect a non-Christian to celebrate Jesus the way a Christian would. So Christians, the challenge is that, first of all, you worship fully during the Advent season. You truly do what you can to worship God. Second tenet is that you spend less, not necessarily that you spend nothing, but to be mindful about how you spend. Is it gratuitous or is it meant to be an act of love? Give more means giving more of self and relationship. That is, after all, what the incarnation is. God gave himself to us for Christmas. And then finally, the last tenet is to love all, to radically love others like Jesus did. God's love was expressed to us in coming to earth. But as we've said, Christmas as we understand it, it's just the beginning of the story. Christmas, actually the end of the Christmas story. And everything in between it is Jesus over and over and consistently expressing love to all the bodies. Not just the somebodies, but the nobodies and in between. And so perhaps... For those of us who do love and follow Jesus, one of the best ways we might consider worshiping him fully this year is by expressing that same kind of love. Uh, the ornaments, which are, um, this makes them no more valuable other than sentimental value, were created, I want you to know, in love. So, the wood came from somewhere on Bud Clayton's farm, right? 
Cedar tree fell in a storm 20 plus years ago, and he took the time to slice each and every one of those into pieces. Your pastor engaged way too much time because, I, you know, I take a long time and I fondly refer it to as Santa's sweatshop this past, uh, prior to Advent, works on putting the design on, and Perry Smith flipped them over and wrote on the back, CBF Global Missions. These are meant to be, in some ways, our gift to you. They're also meant to be a way for you to celebrate the season in just a small way by quote-unquote loving all. You know, you've heard mentioned that um, in your bulletin, you've got this, this envelope. There are many ways that you could give. CBF Global isn't the only one. It is the one that your outward service team has chosen as this year's initiative. And so whether you give a gift in someone else's name and then give them the ornament as a token, or just give a gift as an act of worship and then take that ornament as a reminder to yourself that God, the end of Christmas, is about love. That in Christ, God loved us enough to save us, to allow us to be at the table, because we can be pretty grinchy sometimes, right, too? And that we are called as God's people to at least make the space, make the room. No one can do the work ultimately but God in a person's heart. We don't have the power to make hearts grow three sizes. But we can do what we can do to make room. Zechariah 7, 9, as you heard read earlier, uh, this is what the Lord Almighty said, administer true justice and show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. Uh, one of the commentators that I read, and I thought, I thought this was such an interesting observation there's no practical obligation to care for the people who are listed in this. And by this I mean, if you're a husband or you're a wife, there's sort of like a practical unspoken agreement that y'all are gonna work for each other's good, right? What about the widow? She doesn't have anybody who's responsible for her. As parents, we are responsible for our children. What about the orphan? There's nobody who's socially or morally obligated, right? For the person who has no money, our economy is not obligated to give them things. And that, according to the commentator, is the point. When obligation ends, that's where love begins. It's specifically when you don't have to. When you have no obligation, you are not responsible for a husband or a wife, or you're not responsible for someone else's children. That's exactly the point. Those are the people that we reach out and care for. That's where we show love. And as it turns out, we are that category of people when God comes to us. And so finally, uh, as we wrap this up, um, just a reminder that the real story of Christmas, Grinch talks about Christmas being more, is first and foremost that picture in the stable, as we've heard read, of God coming to us because we were not able to come to God, and how truly miraculous it was 
that God chose to enter our storyline in the person of Jesus. But the end of the story, so to speak, where we go from there, maybe that's what Seuss wanted us to focus on. Maybe that's where God is pushing us just a little bit. To quote Seuss, as the Grinch stood in the snow, puzzling and puzzling, how could it be so? It came without ribbons, it came without tags, it came without packages, boxes, or bags. He puzzled and puzzled till his puzzler was sore, and then the Grinch thought of something he hadn't before. What if Christmas, he thought, doesn't come from a store? What if Christmas, perhaps, means a little bit more? For those of us who are in Christ Jesus, we know that Christmas is a whole lot more. Not just a little bit. It is a hope and a gift that we first of all receive. We receive it with joy and gladness that God did not give up on us, but came to us when we couldn't come to him. And perhaps a way in which we might say thank you is by giving that more, making room at the table in whatever way we're able, so to speak, that someone else might come in and receive the gift of Christmas. Let's go to God in prayer. God, we thank you for the opportunity to worship you. God, we thank you for the reminders that we have so much to worship you for. This tiny everyday gifts that we take for granted, we worship you for those. Even more so beyond what we could have even imagined. The extraordinary gift of, of you, your presence, your person, becoming flesh and God, blood and moving into our neighborhood. We thank you for this more of Christmas, this more of the gospel. And because it is more in this overflow, as we worship you this Christmas, may we share this gift, this love, this invitation to relationship as a way, again, of worshiping you this Christmas. It's in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son, and our Savior that we ask these things. Amen.